This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Supreme Court might stand as an impediment to passing laws that are necessary to promote a free and fair election system. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law. I am Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover those things for Slate magazine. And we're going to drop in on this off week for the show, because with all the excitement around Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court last week, we ended up having to spike a conversation that feels simultaneously incredibly urgent and also depressingly evergreen. And that is a conversation about free speech, false speech, and disinformation and misinformation. We want to talk about it in part because it is the driver of so much election denialism, the collapse of institutions ranging from the media to government, because amid the horrifying news from Ukraine and the pandemic, the phenomenon of what our guest Rick Hassan calls, quote, cheap speech, makes it ever more difficult to fully understand what is happening or why or to know whether you can trust what you hear and even what you see. Slate Plus members are going to have access to an extended version of this interview, and if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can join us at slate.com slash amicus plus to access bonus content, ad-free versions of all of Slate's shows, plus members never hit a paywall on the website. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And so now on to our guest. Richard Hassan is well known to listeners of this show. He is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at UC Irvine School of Law. He's co-director of UC Irvine's Fair Elections and Free Speech Center. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance reform and has appeared in many, many publications, including The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Politico, and of course, Slate.com. Rick and I actually collaborated on the voting series Election Meltdown in the winter of 2020. And in that series, he rather presciently warned about contested elections, vote suppression, and yes, inflammatory and false rhetoric around elections. His new book focuses on that latter problem. It's called Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And it's published by Yale University Press. Rick Hassan, it's great to have you back on Amicus. Well, it's great to be with you. Last time I saw you, there was no pandemic, or it was just starting. So it seems like it was maybe a decade ago, but it was just a couple of years ago. So, Rick, I think the last time that we saw each other, and I parenthetically think we maybe gave each other COVID on that stage, uh, who knows, but I'm thinking about that live show, Rick, uh, which became the last episode of the election meltdown series. So there we were in person on stage in Washington, D.C. It was February of 2020. And we ran through a bunch of 
potential catastrophic election scenarios that could go wrong with the upcoming 2020 election. And some of the things you were worried about in election meltdown, both in the book and in our podcast, didn't really happen. So the electrical grid did not come down on election day in Michigan in 2020. But as I said in the introduction, a lot of the things you were already worried about, even back in 2020, did happen. So questions you were raising then about deep fakes, about inflammatory and polarizing rhetoric, real concerns about the impact all of those things might have on voter confidence, some of those things really do form the spine of this new book. So I think I want to start with the somewhat, forgive me, cheeky question, which is, you were already pretty darn worried about many of these things before the 2020 election. Could the subtitle of Cheap Speech just have easily have been, you thought things were bad the last time? Well, I guess what I'd say is that Election Meltdown was an overly optimistic title for a book. <laughs> Where I miscalculated in thinking back on Election Meltdown and all the many ways that things could have gone wrong, and as, as Ukraine is back in the news, I'm thinking about how the Russians practiced first on Ukraine with their attack on the electrical grid before they were spreading disinformation. They were spreading it there before they were spreading it here. I think the miscalculation that I made was assuming that if we could pull off an actual well-run election, that the kind of energy that there would be to spread false election speech, to, to say that the election is stolen or rigged, would just simply lack the energy and collapse. And that's not what happened. It turned out that we had a much harder time running a free and fair election in 2020 for reasons which none of us could have imagined, which was we were running an election in the middle of a pandemic. And even so, it was run remarkably well. We had to make a lot of changes. More people had to vote by mail. Polling times had to be changed. Primaries had to be moved. And yet the election was maybe one of the best elections we've run in the modern period. And, and it was certainly among the most watched to make sure that it was fair. And yet... Donald Trump, 400 times between Election Day and November 23rd, claimed falsely on Twitter that the election was stolen or rigged or, or some variation on that. And the end result is that here we are now, well past the election, right? And already looking towards the next election. And not only do millions of Trump's supporters believe the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen despite any evidence to support it. Not only are states passing new laws that make it harder to vote, especially to vote by mail, in the name of preventing this phantom fraud, ra raising a, a new risk of voter suppression, but a CNN poll back in September found that for 59% of Republicans, Believing the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen is a key part of what it means to be a Republican. That is, buying into the big lie is part of the Republican identity. And so what I didn't realize is how much the power of unmediated lies about elections could permeate even absent a kernel of truth. And that really shows how fragile our election system is and the confidence in that election system is because it really depends on losers' consent, on the ability of 
an election system to produce a result that not only the winners, but the losers accept as legitimate. My follow-on question was going to be why this pivot from all of the complicated machinery of elections in your last book to questions about speech and lying. But I think you've just answered it. And the answer is you can have the most highly functioning, immaculately pristine working election machinery. And if the lies somehow subordinate all that, it just doesn't matter how good the election systems are. And I think what you're saying is that's why the pivot, that the speech, and I think the attendant loss of sort of dignitary or reputational harms for lying, and I know you talk about that in the book, but that stuff in the end can swamp everything else. And it's so in Kuwait, it's so hard to articulate because it's just not the same as saying people in Georgia stood in line for seven hours, right? It's something that is both everywhere and nowhere, and you're trying to pin it down. Well, you know, the the book started off, and I had a, a, a draft of the book done before the January 6, 2021 insurrection. And I had to completely redo the book and redo the book's introduction because much of what I was talking about as possibilities, how this kind of rhetoric can lead to violence, actually led to violence, and how it could lead to attempts to try to subvert election outcomes, actually led to a concerted effort by uh, Trump and his allies to steal the election based upon lies, lies which I don't believe could have gained the currency if we were living in, say, the same polarized era that we're in today but with the technology of the 1950s. So imagine that Donald Trump comes up to the presidential podium 400 times over three weeks between election day and November 23rd to say the election was stolen or rigged. Walter Cronkite's not going to be repeating that to his viewers 400 times. It's not going to be printed in the local newspaper or in the New York Times 400 times. It's not going to gain the same resonance. And there are not going to be Facebook groups or the ability of people who buy into conspiracy theories, not only to find each other and to egg each other on, but to be able to organize for political action. And so while there are many benefits to our current system of communication, we have the knowledge of the world in the palm of our hands. We can organize for positive action there is a dark side, and the dark side is one that attempts to be a demagogue, attempts to undermine election legitimacy, just have much more fuel in this communications regime than they would have 50 or 60 years ago. It, it strikes me listening to you, Rick, that one of the conversations we had a lot around the 2020 election was the weird byproduct of having this massively decentralized election system in the United States, which turned out to be actually 
a perceived weakness that was a strength. Part of the reason the system held is because it's so decentralized. And I'm finding it really ironic that one of the things you're saying about the media, and I think this is descriptively correct, is that part of the problem is that it is so decentralized. And you mention in the book that Walter Cronkite example, you know, we don't all trust anything anymore. There is a third of the population that believes that every word in the New York Times is a lie. And here you have a problem where, as you say, the decentralization of the media solves a lot of problems. It also creates catastrophic problems in terms of misinformation. And to be clear, it's not just social media. It's the fragmentation of news. It's Fox News. And remember when Fox News was not radical enough for the Trumpists during the 2020 post-election season, Trump told his viewers to go to One America News Network, to go to Newsmax, and they saw a huge spike. So there are alternative outlets. There are no barriers to entry. And one of the things I try and argue in the book is that when it's really expensive to produce quality journalism and when it's really cheap to produce misinformation and when it's profitable to produce that misinformation, it can drive good information out. And that has a number of effects. Number one, it's harder for voters to get accurate information about what's going on and to discern what's accurate. And number two, it creates a kind of feedback cycle. So one of the things... I learned in researching cheap speech was how much profitability there is to producing the kind of wild conspiracy theories that people want to hear. The rise of QAnon, the rise of conspiracy theories related to vaccines, the rise of election denialism. This is making some people rich. And it's also creating this loop where the public demands more disinformation to feed their denialism. And that's what's provided. And even when it's not intended. So someone who goes onto YouTube and watches a video that spreads a kind of claim of election denialism, maybe someone's not sure about the claims about the 2020 election being stolen, they will be fed up by the algorithm at Google that runs YouTube. They'll be fed up more and more extreme videos that will produce more conspiracism and that will make people demand more. And so it's a vicious cycle rather than a virtuous cycle in terms of misinformation. And you know, for too long, we've given a free pass to these companies that just allow this stuff to flourish. Before we get any deeper on the substance of it, I do want to give you a chance to explain the term cheap speech, which is the title of the book, but you credit Professor Eugene Volokh uh, in the 90s uh, with coining it. And can you just tell us what you put in that category of cheap speech as opposed to speech I generally don't like? Sure. So Eugene Volokh wrote a Law Review article in 1995 in the Yale Law Journal called Cheap Speech and What It Will Do. And it was a very prescient article in a number of ways. He, he predicted the rise of things like Spotify and Netflix and just saw this information revolution. And he recognized that it would cause a decline in the value of intermediaries. Think of you know Walter Cronkite as kind of the ultimate intermediary who can tell you that's the way it is. And 
he said, you know, is, is this going to be okay for democracy? Are people going to be able to stand up to the times? I, I, I'm confident they will, but others disagree. That's what he wrote in 1995. And by cheap speech then, he meant the ability to share thoughts inexpensively. So if you saw an article in the New York Times in the 1980s and you strongly disagreed with it, aside from handing out pamphlets on a street corner, really your only option would be to write a letter to the editor to the New York Times and, and hope that it would be published. And your chances of being published, given the volume, were quite small. Now, anybody who has any thought about any New York Times article or about anything else has a free platform. All you have to do is give up your right to privacy and share your data with these companies. And then they'll let you say whatever you want to whatever audience you can muster. And of course, the more outrageous you are, the more likely it is you're going to attract more eyeballs. And so that creates an incentive to produce more bad speech. And so by cheap speech, Volokh meant just cheap that is inexpensive to produce and disseminate. But I mean it in a double way. It's that. But it's also cheap in that it is of lower value. And I'm not calling it lower value speech in the sense of saying it should be censored. That's not the point I'm making at all. But I do think we can draw a distinction between the kind of speech that's produced, say, by thoughtful journalists and the kind of speech that's produced in a troll farm in another country that's just trying to gain some clicks for profit. And maybe also cheap to consume, right? It's the Cheetos of the speech world because it's, as you said, very attractive. It aligns with preconceived ideas. It's inflammatory. It gets our hearts pumping. And so it's, in a weird sense, it's fast food in that it's all calories and not one thing that's good for you. So it's it's cheap to consume as well. Well, I like your Cheetos example because before Cheetos existed, I don't think there was a demand for Cheetos. Yeah. And once you put it on the market, then it's, oh, yeah, you know, I want this garbage. No, no offense to the makers of Cheetos. We will be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Um, I, I wonder if you would talk for a second. You started to say this, and I think it's really helpful to the framing of your argument that the First Amendment is predicated on a notion, and the founders clearly believe this deeply, that more speech will always be better and that good speech will always drown out bad speech. And as you say, this, I don't want to say naive, but I guess I will say inapt at this moment comparison to the marketplace of ideas. And one of the things you lead with is the notion that this isn't a case where the truth, the good ideas, the fact-based journalism or reporting rises to the top. It gets choked out by the cheap speech. You started to talk a little bit about why that happens, why this is not a marketplace that left to its own devices will surface the truth. But can you just help take us along that analysis? Because I think it, otherwise it's very hard to get to where you want to go. We have to start off with the fact that we are a very polarized society. And our polarization began before the rise of cheap speech. You know, it has to do with changes in American political alignments with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, and us sorting into two political parties, one that represents more liberal ideas and one that represents more conservative ideas. So already we were primed to a situation where people have different values and people have different respect for institutions that traditionally have been relied upon as reliable intermediaries for understanding the truth. This is a way I think it's kind of a different cut at understanding why Donald Trump was so successful as a political leader in attracting support. Think about who he attacked. He attacked the press as the true enemy of the people. I mean, really something that no modern American president would have come close to, certainly not in public. He attacked the FBI he attacked the judiciary and the legal system. He attacked the opposition party. He attacked his own party. And so all of these attacks tend to undermine those institutions in society that most people relied upon for fair and unbiased information. Right? It's the same thing we see in government where Democrats and Republicans used to rely on estimates from the Congressional Budget Office to figure out what the effects of a budget change would be, or on the American Bar Association to figure out if a judge was qualified or not. 
all of these things have gotten politicized. And as the um, intermediaries are being attacked, we have this new means of communication that's opened up that has allowed those who are demagogues, those who want to spread false information for, or even incendiary, if not false information, for political gain and for profit, have the ability to reach those people directly. You know, just in the last few weeks, we've seen Donald Trump trying to launch a new Orwellian-named social media app called Truth and try and create an alternative ecosystem of facts or what Kellyanne Conway once called alternative facts, what we might call lies, to, to bolster the arguments for the political agenda of these leaders. And so if you believe that COVID vaccines don't work, you believe that Biden is senile, you know, you, you go through the litany of the things. If you can actually get people to believe them, then you can get them to support you politically and to support you financially. And so there, there's just this emerging system where truth doesn't rise to the top. And I don't know if the marketplace of ideas ever was an accurate description of American society, but there's no good social science evidence today that truth rises to the top. In, in fact, we see so much more of motivated reasoning where you have kind of a preconceived conclusion of, of where you want to go on a particular factual question and you get there because of your political or other value-based commitments. And so that sort of tendency of all of us to want to believe what is most consistent with our values is just supercharged in an era when it's easy to get affirmation and it's easy to move towards a kind of tribalism that discounts not just the other side's opinions, but the other side's facts. Do you want to talk for a little bit about some of your solutions? You have essentially disaggregated in the book what the law can handle and what the law can't handle. And part of the confounding problem here, of course, is the First Amendment. So maybe can you give us a little bit of what you're thinking of in terms of legal fixes with the caveat that the First Amendment precludes some fixes. And also, I think you note the court is really changing in its thinking around the First Amendment right now. Right. And I think that that's really an important factor. Over the last 20 years, I've thought of the Supreme Court as kind of libertarian and deregulationist, you know, at least among its conservative members in thinking about issues of speech. So, for example, you have Justice Clarence Thomas, who's written that he believes that all campaign finance limits are unconstitutional under the First Amendment. You can't limit how much people or corporations want to spend on elections. He also doesn't even believe you can require much disclosure of those who are spending money on elections. And that itself creates a kind of problem for voters who can't tell who's trying to influence their opinions. But turns out that Clarence Thomas is not a full-fledged libertarian when it comes to free speech. In, in a case involving a tangential, involving Donald Trump's ability to block people on Twitter, case that came to be known as Biden versus First Amendment Institute, which the Supreme Court got rid of because Trump was no longer president and the issue was moot. 
Clarence Thomas decided to use that opportunity to support a wacky argument that was first floated by Eugene Volokh, the, the uh, author of that cheap speech article, and, and a few others, that social media companies could be required to carry the speech of candidates that they don't like, even if those candidates might be fomenting violence or spreading false claims about elections being stolen. I mean, this was clearly a response by Justice Thomas to the deplatforming by Twitter and Facebook, that is removing from the platforms, of Donald Trump in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th insurrection. And the legal theory that Volokh and Thomas have put forward is, you know, a, a social media company is really like a telephone company. All they do is connect users. And a state can pass a law that says they don't have the ability to discriminate. You can't say, you know, Nazis can't use the phone. But it's a false analogy because it depends on the idea that social media companies don't curate speech when that's exactly what they do. When they decide to remove pornography or hate speech, when they decide to promote certain posts and to demote others, when they build their algorithms, all of that is a means of promoting speech. So here's Justice Thomas, just to give you uh, an example, would ban laws that I think uh, under the First Amendment that we really need to help voters make decisions like laws that would require those who spend money on online ads to reveal who they are. You spend a million dollars on ads trying to convince people to vote for a particular candidate, you should have to disclose. And then on the other side, Justice Thomas has said, you know, that states can pass laws that must carry laws that would require the carrying of even dangerous speech. This is what I mean by saying in the book that the Supreme Court might stand as an impediment to passing laws that are necessary to promote a free and fair election system. And even so, even given these differences, I don't believe that law alone can solve the problem. So I think we could have a law, for example, that makes it illegal to lie on social media or elsewhere about when, where, and how people vote, you know, saying you can vote by text. We had a case like that, or Democrats vote on Tuesday, Republicans vote on Wednesday. But you probably can't, consistent with the First Amendment, ban lies about the last election being stolen. That goes really to kind of the heart of political speech, while laws that go to when, where, and how people vote interfere with the election process itself. And so law alone can't solve the problem. And we need some political solutions to deal with this because, and it's the same thing with the risk of election subversion that we face in the United States today. Law is only going to be as strong as people's willingness to obey it. And we have to start thinking about a broad civil society movement supporting truth and the value of the rule of law if we're going to get out of this moment. So that's a taste of my conversation with Richard Hassan about his new book, Cheap Speech, which is coming out this next week on March 8th from Yale University Press. You can hear more from Rick and get more bonus content on every Amicus episode by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash Amicus Plus. Thank you as ever to our Slate Plus members. 
Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer, and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we'll be back with another episode of Amicus in one short week. <laughs>